Have you ever learned a positive lesson from a negative example? Okay, positive lesson, negative example. When my three kids were in grade school, they all played park district soccer. Now, I grew up playing lots of sports, but soccer was not one of them. So when my kids started playing soccer, I, you know, I know the basic gist of the game, played it in gym class, but I didn't know a lot of the rules. And so when the park district said, we'd like some parents to be involved, I, you know, I volunteered to be a coach, but I said, I'll need to be an assistant coach. You'll have to team me up with a head coach who knows soccer. And so they, you know, I became an assistant coach and the head coach, another dad, he knew soccer, but he didn't know little girls. And, and so this was my daughter's team. She was like in third grade at the time. And this coach would gather the girls together and he'd get out a clipboard and he'd diagram a play. It was like something out of a, a World Cup competition, you know. And so some of the little girls are over picking four-leaf clovers up out of the grass and others are chit-chat. They're giggling about things little, little girls giggle about. And so I, I learned from this dad, this head coach, how not to coach a soccer team of little girls. And uh, the next year, I had honed up on soccer, and I became a coach, and we did pretty good. So today, we're in the final week of a four-part parenting series, and we're going to learn some positive lessons from a negative example. We're going to look at a famous dad in the Bible who made some major mistakes when it came to parenting his adult children. Now, as we've been saying over the last several weeks of, of this series, although this is, in one sense, a parenting series... We expect everybody to benefit from it because we all interact with kids in some way, shape, or form. You, you may be uh, an aunt or an uncle to kids. You may be a school teacher. You may be a coach. You may be someone who employs. You're an employer of, of kids, young people. You may be someone who works in our kids' world here, volunteers in our student ministries. You may just be a friend of someone in the age group that we're talking about. So, so the goal of this series is is to help us, equip us, to help kids in a relationship with Jesus, help them walk with Christ. The first week of the series, the series that we're calling Pathway, Leading Kids to Walk with Christ, first week covered preschoolers, faith lessons for preschoolers. Second week was faith lessons for grade schoolers. Third week, faith lessons for teens. Today, it's faith lessons for young adults. And by young adults, I'm talking about kids if it's okay to still call them kids who are in their 20s and 30s. So some of you just figured it out, I guess I'm a kid, right? Well, 20s and 30s, if you've got uh, parents who are concerned about leading you in a walk with Christ and other adults or peers, you know, this is a, this is a study met, meant to help in that regard. Now, our study is going to focus on a dad in the Bible who really messed up. Uh, interestingly, this dad was a huge success in other areas of his life. When he was a young man, he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with a ginormous enemy warrior with only a slingshot, and he won the battle. And he went on to become Israel's most illustrious, most celebrated king. And he was not only a great leader, great ruler, he was a deeply spiritual man. He's the guy who came up with the idea, let's build a temple in which God could be worshipped. He, he's the guy who wrote dozens of worship songs that later were included in an Old Testament book called Psalms. I'm talking, of course, about David, King David. And I want you to turn with me. We're going to look at his story together. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 13. 
And I want to just keep reminding you, if you don't have a Bible yet, get yourself a Bible. If you don't bring it with you, make a practice of bringing it with you and marking it up as we go along, whether it's a hard copy or electronic copy. Mark as we go, and you'll find an outline in your program that you could fill in as we go along. So these faith lessons we're learning can be things that you remember for a long time. Now, when David's kids became young adults, several of them shipwrecked their lives. The story we're looking at today is a tragic story. And it's made even more tragic by the fact that it happened right under David's nose and he did nothing to stop it. So today we're going to learn from David's mistakes. Four faith lessons for young adults. And just just one point of clarification before we we jump in. When I say that these lessons are for young adults... uh, They're not aimed at young adults themselves. They're actually aimed at those of us who interact with young adults. These are really faith lessons for us. So here's faith lesson number one. If you want to lead young adults into a a rich relationship, a walk with Christ, faith lesson number one, walk the talk. Walk the talk. Now, I apologize for the cliché because I'm not a big fan of clichés, but I, I couldn't come up with a better way of saying Grown kids are not looking for faith tutorials, okay? They're, they're, they're not waiting to hear the next gem of wisdom, sage advice drip from our lips. No, they're, they're, they're watching us. They're watching us carefully to see if we're going to live out the truth we profess. They're watching to see if our relationship with Jesus is, is really making a positive difference in our lives. Do we walk the talk? Now, now it's not that talk is unimportant. We're going to come back to that. It's, it's very important. But we've got to walk the talk. And let me tell you, young people in their 20s and 30s, I could say this as a dad of three kids in this age group, what is huge to them is authenticity. Authenticity. Now, David failed his kids in this regard. But before I remind you of David's particular failure, let me introduce you to three of his grown children. They're named Amnon, Tamar, and Absalom. And the story begins at verse 1 of chapter 13 of 2 Samuel. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. You confused yet? there's, There's a lot of story in this opening verse, so let me unpack it for you. Amnon is David's oldest son, and he falls in love with his half-sister, Tamar. See, David had children by multiple wives. Now, the fact is, and we're going to learn this soon, that Amnon was not in love with Tamar. He was in lust with Tamar, okay? Tamar was a beautiful young woman. Tamar was hot, and Amnon was horny. You will not find that in the Hebrew of the text, but (laughs) just an observation. And he knows, Amnon knows that a relationship with Tamar is strictly out of bounds. They're half-siblings. They've got the same dads. Incest is not acceptable. And yet Amnon still wants Tamar. So a friend of Amnon's comes to his rescue. Jonadab, he describes a little, you know, a little scheme that Amnon might want to participate in. He said, you should go to bed and, and feign sickness. Act like you're sick, and your dad will come to see how you're doing. And when he comes, you could say, you know, Dad, I'd feel a little better if you just send Tamar my way with something to eat. And so the ruse works. I want to read to you what happens next, picking it up at verse 10. 
as Tamar comes to nurse her poor brother Amnon back to health. Verse 10, then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What, what about me? Where, where could I get rid of my disgrace? What about you? You'd be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He'll let me, he, he will not keep me from being married to you. Which, by the way, she knew wasn't the truth, but she, she's trying to buy time. Verse 14, but Amnon refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. You know, this is not a nice story. And yet it's happening under David's nose. It's happening in his house. It's happening in his family. You know, Amnon is forcing himself and his half-sister, and she's resisting, and he's overpowering her. He's, he's driven by the sexual aggression. And I want to ask you, where do you think he learned it? Where do you think he saw it? You know, the old saying is the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. In this case, Amnon was the apple and David was the tree. You know the backstory to this. David had had an affair, a marital affair with his neighbor's wife, Bathsheba, back when he was in his 40s, which, which would have meant that Amnon, his oldest son, would have been in his teens, old enough to watch the whole thing play out. So, so, so David goes after a woman who should have been out of bounds, his neighbor's wife, just like Amnon goes out for a woman who's out of bounds, his half-sister Tamar. And in the David story, his servant objects and says, David, you don't really want to do this, do you? Just like Tamar objects, Amnon, please don't do this wicked thing. And in the David story, David forcefully uses his kingship to get his way with Bathsheba, just like Amnon uses the force, brute force, physically being stronger than Tamar to get his way with his half-sister. You see any similarities here? See, Amnon is just following, following in the footsteps of his dad, friends. You know, young adults, grown kids, are looking for people who walk the talk because they're more likely to mimic what they see us do than what they hear us say. You know, that, that means if you're grown kids, if they observe you dissing a traffic cop who just gave you a ticket and you're, you're, you're saying to them as you drive off, the guy's such an idiot. Well, then don't be surprised if your grown kids don't have a respect for authority, right? If you never lift a finger around your house to help to do laundry or vacuuming or wash dishes, don't, don't be surprised if your kids don't grow up with a spirit of serving others. If your kids observe you downloading on Netflix a movie that's got nude love scenes in it and they're watching you watch and you seem to be cool with it, then don't be surprised when they announce they're moving in with their boyfriend or girlfriend or you know, they're, 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 they're involved sexually, but don't worry, it's safe sex. You know, if your grown kids never see you read the book, never observe you serving the poor, never, 
Never hear you say, yeah, you got other priorities on a weekend, but being in a church is even more important, so that's where you're going. What do we expect from them? Now, the good news is, just like we can have a negative impact on young adults by the way we walk the talk, we can also have a profoundly positive impact by the way we walk the talk. Now, I found that out recently from my own kids. I just celebrated a, uh, a milestone birthday, and so my three grown kids, as well as their spouses, all three are now married, so the, the six of them each wrote a letter to me as part of my birthday gift. And i got to tell you, birth, best birthday gifts I've ever received. And so I, I want to read to you just a couple of quotes from their letters. I, I swear to you, it's not for the purpose of impressing you with what a great dad I am, because my kids could cite all sorts of screw-ups on my part as well. And I'm going to get to a few of those a little later. But, but right now, I just want to read you some nice things they said about me because these, these quotes underscore the point that I'm trying to make here that what young adults care about are people who walk the talk. So my, my 28-year-old son, Andrew, he writes, I'm beginning to understand how much hard work, hard work you put into setting yourself up to be a truly honorable man. Your relationship with God, your love of mom, your care for your kids, all have been done with such thoughtful and prayerful integrity. Hard work, Dad. I see it. I read that and I thought if he only knew how much hard work it is for me. You know, people ask me from time to time, what's the toughest part of being a pastor? And I always say, getting me ready. Okay, the toughest part is me. My son's watched. You know, my 30-year-old daughter, Rachel, she writes, I, I thank God for your love for Jesus and your desire for people to come to know him, which has always been a model I look up to. Model. See, that, that's, that's a walk-the-talk word. You, you hear what she's saying? Dad, I know you love people who don't yet know Jesus, and it's because I see it in your life. She sees the way I interact with my neighbor's who are spiritually lost and people I meet at the health club and work out with and the conversations we have. And what she's telling me is I've learned more from watching you in those respects, you're, you're modeling, than I have from listening to your sermons that say we ought to go out and share the good news of Jesus with people. So, so let me say to you, if you've got values you'd like to pass on to grown kids, if there are behaviors you, you'd like to see evidenced in their lives, may, make a list of those things and then ask yourself the question, am I walking the talk in these areas? What are they seeing in me with respect to these areas? You get it? Good. Here's faith lesson number two. Say the hard thing, but gently, Okay. Say the hard thing. Back to the story in 2 Samuel 13. After Amnon rapes Tamar, he loses all interest in her. He kicks her out of his room. Tamar is devastated. She, she leaves Amnon's place weeping uncontrollably. And Absalom, her full brother, he comes across Tamar in this condition and he guesses. Listen, he guesses what's behind it. He immediately surmises that Amnon has violated Tamar. And, and here's a point I want you to keep in mind because we're going to keep coming back to this today. If Absalom could figure things out, 
I mean, if, if Absalom suspected that Amnon had the hots for Tamar, if Absalom knew that his brother Amnon was a loose cannon, how could David miss those danger signals? Now, how, how could David, in this story, how could he send Tamar right into Amnon's clutches? Friends, I don't think this was a dad who didn't see reality. I think David saw it. He just chose to ignore it. So Absalom tells Tamar that he'll take care of things. He says to her, you know, let's just keep this quiet right now, okay? And Absalom takes his sister Tamar under his wing. And David eventually hears about the rape. And you know, you know what David does when he hears about the rape? What do you think he does? Nothing. A guy who could confront a giant with only a slingshot, but he couldn't confront his grown kids with the truth. And so for the next two years, there, there was a cold war between Absalom and Amnon. They didn't speak to each other, and all this time, Absalom was plotting revenge. So pick up the story down in verse 23 of 2 Samuel 13. It says, two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Belhazer, near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. You know, we're going to have a sheep shearer party. All right, so the invitations go out. Absalom went to the king, David, and he said, your servant has had shearers come. Will the king and his attendants please come join me? No, my son, King David replied, all of us should not go. We'd only be a burden to you. And although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. And then Absalom, Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. And the king asked him, uh, like, why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. And then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules, and fled. And while they were on their way, the report came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's son. Not one of them is left. And the king stood up, tore his clothes, and lay down on the ground. And all his attendants stood by with their clothes torn. But Jonadab, son of Shimea, David's brother, said, My lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's express intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. Stop there. I mean, th things are going from bad to worse in David's family. One of his sons is a rapist. The other has now conspired to commit murder. And David is still not addressing the situation. In, in, in fact, there, there are a couple of indications in the verses I just read to you that he's actually deliberately sticking his head in the sand. So go back to verse 26. Okay, Absalom wants David to come, and he says, no, I can't come. And so Absalom says, well, send Amnon. And what's David's response? Why should Amnon go with you? See, David smells a rat. He's suspicious. So what does he do with his hunch? Nothing. He sends Amnon right into Absalom's ambush. Go down to verse 32. Jonadab comes with the news that Absalom has killed Amnon. Look at the middle of the verse. Jonadab says to David, David, this has been Absalom's express 
intention. Underline that in your Bible. Express intention. Ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. You hear what Jonadab's saying? Hey, Absalom talked about it all the time, David. Everybody heard it. Everybody knew what was going on. There's no way you could possibly have missed this. It was obvious, David. What do we do when something is obviously wrong in the lives of the, wrong, uh, of the young adults that we're close to, especially our grown kids? You know, what do we do when it's obvious that they're drinking too much? Or it's obvious that they're spending themselves into debt. Or it's obvious that they're engaged in sexual promiscuity. It's obvious that they're walking away from God and from spiritual influences. Do we tell ourselves, well, I can't say anything because they're on their own now? Or do we, we, we tell ourselves, I, you know, I can't say anything because then they'll close down, they'll cut off communication. I can't say anything because I'll lose their friendship. Are those good reasons to avoid our responsibility to say the hard thing? Gently, but say the hard thing. Now, let, let me throw in a quick disclaimer here, okay? Some of us already say too much. And may, maybe a better way to put this is all of us on some occasions say too much. All of us. You know, but, but some of us are constantly offering unsolicited advice. Some of us have, have a habit of saying the hard thing, not gently, but critically. And so my, my fear here in encouraging us to lovingly confront young adults is that the wrong people are going to hear this message and they're going to go off and they're going to be even more overbearing and outspoken and insensitive than they already are. And they're going to blame Pastor Jim. He told us to do it. One of the things you learn as a preacher is that the wrong people always get the message. <laughs> but truthfully... I mean, the tendency to say too much is something that I wrestle with. You know, maybe it's a pitfall of being a preacher. The minute I spot something wrong in the, one, the lives of one of my grown kids, I immediately begin to formulate a three-point sermon with illustrations and analogies. And, you know. I'm ready with a sermon. What they need is a sounding board. You know, I've, I've recognized even recently a situation where I was lecturing instead of listening. Now, I'm going to talk more about active listening in, in general as my next main point. But right now, I just want to tie listening into this point about saying the hard thing. So if we, if we see something amiss in the lives of young adults, it's always better to address the matter by asking questions, listening, instead of by making statements, declarations. My, my daughter-in-law, Marianne, has graciously given me a passing grade in this regard. Here, here's what Marianne wrote to me. She's married to my son, Andrew. This is her birthday letter to me, quote, you always have a great listening ear. You're the first to ask how we are and how our relationship with God is. Those questions help us to stay grounded, and we're thankful for your bravery to ask them. You know, there, are, there are a couple of insights in Marion's summary here that, that underscore what I'm trying to get across. If you're going to say the hard thing, then 
If at all possible, say it with questions. Ask questions instead of making statements. Sensitive questions instead of critical statements. And the second thing she notes is, this takes some bravery on your part, Dad. And I want to tell you, it sure as heck does. And I'm so tempted to say it's not worth rocking the boat. Don't want to jeopardize anything here. David was a wimp, friends. He could confront a giant with a slingshot, but when his kids were train wrecking their lives, he stood by silently and said nothing. And I'll tell you, I've made a commitment. I know there are going to be times I'm going to have to go back and apologize for having said too much, but I'd rather say too much than watch them mess up their lives knowing I didn't say anything. Quick footnote to this point, you know, don't wimp out, don't wimp out. One of the situations that creates the need to say hard things gently to our kids is when those kids are still living at home in their late 20s or, or they, you know, they've moved out but now they come back sometimes, say, in their 30s because they lost a job and so they're, they're financially, you know, straight out or a marriage has, young marriage has exploded on them and maybe they're moving back in. One of them's moving in with the grandkids. And I want to tell you, this can be a blessing, but it can also be a disaster. It all depends on whether mom and dad are willing to sit down and discuss with that grown child living at home the expectations, the boundaries, if they're willing to say hard things. Now, now I would love to go into this point because in further detail, because this is a really commonplace situation today. Many, many more grown kids living at home than at any time in the past. But I'll give you a resource help because we don't have time to delve into it. It's a book that I read in preparation for this sermon called How to Really Love Your Adult Child. How to Really Love Your Adult Child. It's written by two very savvy Christian counselors. And at least three or four of the chapters deal with this topic of how to set expectations and boundaries with grown kids who are living at home. So if you want a further resource, I would recommend the book to you. Here's a third faith lesson. Be an active listener. Okay, this is the listening point. Back to the story in 2 Samuel. After Absalom kills Amnon, he takes off. He knows he's in trouble for having plotted Amnon's death, and so Absalom runs. And interestingly, David really misses him. In fact, look at the two closing verses of 2 Samuel 13, verses 38 and 39. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years, and King David longed. I want you to circle the word longed, because we're going to see it again in just a moment. He longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. Stop there for a minute. What does it mean that David was consoled concerning Amnon's death? Yeah, you know, I think that David probably felt to some extent that Amnon got what was coming to him for having raped his sister Tamar. See, you see, in Old Testament times, rape was a very serious offense. It was punishable by death. Now, I'm not suggesting that Absalom had the right to be the judge, the jury, the executioner, all rolled into one, but David probably sympathized a little bit with what, what, what Absalom did. David understood that Amnon deserved to die. In, in any case, David longed for Absalom. 
And that's what it says in the closing verse of 2 Samuel 13, verse 39, that I just read to you. King David longed to go to Absalom. And that's what we find repeated in the opening verse of the next chapter, 2 Samuel 14, verse 1. Joab, son of Zeruiah, David's right-hand man, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. Circle it again. Now, here's the interesting thing about David's relationship with Absalom. Even though David longed for his grown son, okay, listen, even though David longed for his grown son, even though he wanted to work through the messy situation to restore the broken fellowship, he did nothing, nothing to remedy the situation. Nothing. You know, there, there was no royal pardon for Absalom. Something King David probably could have done, especially in light of Amnon's rape. No attempt to reach out, no attempt to communicate with Absalom. See, David is a dad who longed for a relationship with his grown son, but relationships require communication. That's something David was not very good at. Now, now this is where the story gets a bit humorous. See, David had a friend who couldn't bear to see this broken relationship between father and son. And he, he was thinking to himself, you know, if I, if I could just get David and Absalom together in the same room, if I, could, if I could just get them talking. This buddy of David was named Joab. And Joab realized it was probably not a good idea to confront David directly. So he came up with a little ruse. He hired an old lady and he gave her a make-believe story. He said, I want you to go to David, and I want you to tell him that you have lost your only son, and you, you want to get him back. Now, just an aside here, the reason I think this is so funny is because when, when you read this, you say, wait a second, this happened once before in David's life, right? Back when he sinned with Bathsheba, and God wanted to confront David about his adultery, he sent Nathan the prophet, and Nathan the prophet didn't think it was a good idea to take a direct approach, so Nathan came with a story, a make-believe story, only, only he, he didn't sell it as make-believe, he said this is a you know, real thing that's happened, there's, there's this brutal, wealthy guy you know, living near here, and he's got all sorts of, he's rich, he's got all sorts of flocks, and his poor neighbor has one little lamb, and this guy ripped off the poor neighbor, neighbor's little lamb and cooked it as mutton stew for himself and some guests. And David doesn't realize the stories about him, that, that he's the rich guy who ripped off the little lamb of his neighbor, namely his wife. And so David comes unglued, he leaps out of his throne and says, that lamb stealer deserves to die. Remember this? And Nathan looks at him and says, you're the dude. You know, that is the original Hebrew there. Dude, yes. So you're the guy, David. Okay, so now David has a little old lady come to him and says, King David, I have a story to tell you. Now I'm reading this and I'm thinking, David's not saying, whoa, wait a second here. I've done that story bit before. I know where this is going. Okay, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not listening to any story. But no, David's a sucker for a good story. And so this lady hears her story. She says, I'm a widow and I've got two sons. Recently, they got into an argument, and it got heated, and one of them ended up getting killed, and now, now they have my other son, the only living son I have. He's in police custody, and they're going to execute him as a murderer. 
And she says, oh, king, if you could just help me, if you could just help me get my son back. And again, David the sucker, he leaps to his feet and he says, I'm the king, I can do whatever I want. I'll get you your son back. And now she springs the trap on him. She says, and king, by the way, what about your son? Can you get him back? You just see David going, ah. I gotta stop listening to those chicken soup for the soul stories. Get me every time. And David knew who was behind this. He said, this is, this is a Joab trick. And so he calls Joab in. Go over to chapter 14, drop down to verse 21. The king said to Joab, very well, I'll do it. You go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell with his face to the ground to pay him honor, and he blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that he's found favor in your eyes, my lord the king, because the king has granted his servant's request. And then Joab went to Geshur, and he brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. Now listen, but the king said, He must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. As you're reading this, you say, I can't believe this. David finally gets his son back. I mean, the relationship is going to be mended. The two of them are going to start talking, right? Wrong. David gives Absalom the silent treatment. He sends Absalom to his own home. He ignores him. And every time Absalom calls, David looks at his smartphone. If the caller ID says Absalom, forget it. I'm not taking the call. And drop down to verse 28. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Now, this leads to a second humorous incident in the story. Okay, Absalom is desperate to talk to his dad. And so he sends a message to Joab, and he says, my, my father refuses to talk to me. Could you set up an appointment with dad? You're his right-hand man. And, and Joab does nothing with the message, ignores it. So Absalom sends him the message a second time. My dad won't talk to me. Would you set something up? Joab ignores it a second time. So now Absalom's desperate, and this is the part I love. He sends two of his servants into Joab's barley field, and they set it on fire. And now Joab comes chugging over to his house and says, Are you crazy? Yo, what are you doing? Set my fields on fire. And Absalom says, Now that I've got your attention, you know, would you set up an appointment with my dad? And that's what happens. Drop down in closing verse of chapter 14, verse 33. So Joab went to the king and he told him this. And then the king summoned Absalom and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Now, friends, I'm going to assume that the relationships most of us have with our grown kids are not quite as estranged as this relationship between David and Absalom. I'm going to assume here for, for a moment that we, we don't need mediators scheming how to get us back together. We, we don't need somebody setting a fire in order to get our, our attention. I'm going to assume for a moment that most of us, maybe not all of us, but most of us have a relatively amicable, peaceful relationship with the young adults in our lives. However, that doesn't mean we're talking with them. Are we communicating? You know, not just about the weather and the cubs and our jobs 
and summer vacation plans, but are we having conversation about stuff that really matters? Okay, the Cubs really matter, but that, you know, the... See, the key, the key to having worthwhile conversations, listen, the key is to take the initiative. And the, the way you take the initiative is by asking good questions. And I want to underscore here good questions. I'm not talking about the kinds of questions that, 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 that a young adult can respond to in a one-word grunt. I'm not talking about the kinds of questions that sound like a police interrogation. I'm talking about good questions, the kind of questions your grown kids may enjoy answering. So where, where do you find these good questions? You know, for years, Sue and I have beat the drum. Our favorite book in this regard Simple little book called A Thousand and One Questions. We sell it at Resource because we encourage community group leaders to use it. Thousand great questions. We've used it around our dinner table for years. We use it when we have company over. Sue and I still use it on occasion when we go out for a date. Somebody calls out a number between one and a thousand. Then they pick up the book and they read the question, the corresponding question to that number, and they answer it. And it stimulates some really great conversation. And, and, and one of the things you'll learn is if you'll, you'll get a tool like this and begin to use it regularly, you'll get good at asking good questions without the tool. By the way, somebody told me recently, they said, do you know you don't need the book? There's a phone app you could get. Great questions. I haven't looked it up yet. Haven't added it to my, my smartphone, but sounds like a great idea. But one caveat in this regard don't ask great questions if you're not sincerely interested in the answers. If your intent is not to know that other person deeply, forget the good questions. It's just a gimmick then. You know, I've had people ask me a great question on occasion, and you're like, oh, that's good. And you, you say, well, and you start to answer, and you get one sentence in, and they interrupt and start talking about themselves again. And you're like, oh, I thought you, you wanted to know, know about me. You've all had that happen to you, right? So, so if you're going to do something like this, you've got to be sincere in your interest, hearing an answer. You know, what's going on inside? Uh, this past winter, my son Andrew and his wife Marianne, they lived with Sue and me for a couple of months. Uh, they had been living in an apartment in the city, and they were moving out and into another apartment, but there was going to be a two-month gap, so they came to live with us. And one of the great benefits is they're like gourmet cooks. So February and March, were they were rocking around our house at mealtime. Oh, my goodness, so good. But, but we asked them recently, because we had, now that they're back in the city, we said, so... What is it we do to help you walk with Christ? We want to know, top of the list, what's the best thing we do? We were going to ask the, the flip side, too, like, what are we doing that's hindering? But we first wanted to find out from them, what do we do that's helpful? And right away, top of the list, they said, you make time for conversations and you ask good questions. And I got to tell you, when I first heard that, I, my immediate response was, oh, that's not that great. You know, like I was hoping for something a little more momentous. You, you make time for conversations. Like anybody can do that, right? And then I stopped and thought about it, and I thought, yeah, but most people don't, do we? I mean, especially when you're talking young adults with busy lights, lives and crowded schedules, I realized I got to go back, back to a habit I had developed the first time they lived in the city, and I got to start practicing it again now that they're back in the city. 
And that is every Monday afternoon at 5 p.m., I would call my son to talk for 20 to 30 minutes on the phone. It was a standing appointment. I didn't figure that out myself. A friend of mine said he's got a son in another town, grown son. It was something he did on a regular basis. I thought, I thought that's killer. That's great. And I'd love to tell you that I did it with you know, frequency, that we did it every single week. You know, there were weeks that we missed, but overall, you almost got to schedule time in order to be an active listener. That's our third faith lesson. Faith lesson number four. Openly confess your wrongs. Openly confess your wrongs. We just had this weekend, we had a marriage conference at Christ Community Church. In fact, hundreds of you attended, uh, a number of people at Blackberry Creek as well. It was a wonderful conference. And the uh, two presenters from California, they contacted me several weeks ago and they said, you know, we would love to have you come up at the end of the morning session on Saturday and do a Q&A. You and Sue come on stage and we'll ask people to text in questions. And they supplied me with a list of some of the sorts of questions they've gotten at other conferences. So I looked at the list and I was immediately amused by one of the questions, which was, is it wrong to argue in front of your kids? Now, I was amused because I immediately thought, well, it may be wrong, but we sure do it. <laughs> okay, it's not so funny. Uh, yeah, but, we, you know, we have learned, we have learned that there are times you just kind of need to do, okay, time out. We got to take this off the field and into the locker room. Okay, but there have been times when we've blown it in that regard. And, you know, one of the times that comes to my mind because it was, it's so memorable, uh, we were taking the family vacation of a lifetime. Uh, we had taken our family to Paris, and we were standing on the platform of a train station in Paris trying to figure out how to get to our destination. And so we're looking at the map, the map's in French, all the signs are in French, nobody in our family speaks French. And so Sue and I began to argue about which train to take. And she was certain we needed to take the next train going that way. And I thought, no, 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 we got to take the next train going that way. And so we proceeded to argue about this. And the argument became so heated that, that a local Parisian finally came over and said, in broken English, can I help you? And I wanted to say, yeah, are you a marriage counselor? <laughs> So we, you know, we finally ended up getting where we needed to go, but I'll tell you, it, it required that we circle back with our kids and apologize. We had to say, yeah, I was really stupid. You know, they, I mean, they were mortified. <laughs> Mom and dad duking it out on a train station, you know. It's so humbling to say to your kids, I was wrong. It's humbling when they're little. Let me tell you, it just gets harder when they're grown. Not too long ago, I had to circle back with my son, two sons-in-law, and say, hey, guys, I've done something wrong. I need to let you know about it so you don't do the same stupid thing. Now I had their attention. You know. I said, you know Instagram? Of course, everybody knows Instagram. So I've got two daughters with uh, little children, and they love to post pictures of my grandkids on Instagram, so I love to see it. But I also discovered, as I told my son and sons-in-law, that a lot of people post very inappropriate pictures on Instagram, and you could find your way around to them if you work at it. 
And I had to say, and that's what I did, and it was really stupid. And I know Jesus says, if you lust, better to carve your eye out and throw it away, is how Jesus stated it. So now, you know, now I look at Instagram on my wife's phone. You don't think that was humbling? Oh, my goodness. But here's what I discovered. Openly confessing our wrong may be the most powerful faith lesson we can pass on to our kids. Why do I say that? Well, because my, my wrongs are where the gospel story begins, the good news about Jesus. You see, at one time, my sins separated me from a holy God by choosing to go my own way instead of God's way countless times in the course of every day. I had alienated myself from this God who had made me in his image, who wanted a relationship with me, who had lavished his love upon me. And I went my own way. And Jesus came to restore that relationship. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins, the penalty being death. I had unplugged from the source of life. I deserved to die. Jesus took the death I deserved to die. And then he rose from the dead so he could offer me forgiveness and a brand new life. And so I surrendered my life to Christ and I received those gifts of forgiveness and new life. And so now I, you know, I don't have to hide the fact that I'm a sinner who daily stands in need of God's grace. See, it's easier to admit our wrongs when we've already acknowledged them to God and had them washed away by Jesus. Personally experiencing the gospel just leads to greater transparency. It's easier to say to my kids, I messed up. I've already said it to God, I've messed up and received his forgiveness and cleansing. You know, as I reread the story of David and his grown children this past week, I, you know, I wondered, did David, David ever share Psalm 51 with his kids? Psalm 51 is a song that David wrote after he confessed his sin, his affair with Bathsheba to God. I taught Psalm 51 several weeks ago. Listen to a few of David's lines in that song. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. So cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. And then create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That's powerful stuff. And friends, I'm sure that David's kids, his grown kids, they knew the first part of the Bathsheba story. They had heard it growing up from friends on the, on the playground. You know what your dad did? But what I want to know is, did they know how the story ends? Did David ever sit down with his grown sons and say, Amnon, Absalom, I really messed up. But let me tell you what I've discovered. God is a forgiving God. And if we'll humbly come before him, if we'll appeal on the basis of the sacrifices, in David's case, animal sacrifices that pointed to the one true ultimate sacrifice of God's son that would eventually come. On the basis of the sacrifice, I've been cleansed. I've been washed. God's given me a new heart, a heart that desires to follow him. Think of what a powerful story that would have been in the lives of David and his sons. 
You know, this is the gospel that our kids need to hear from us on a regular basis. I mess up, but God forgives. Not because I deserve it, but because Jesus gave his life for me. He washes me clean. I want to follow him. Yeah, let me just review the four faith lessons for young adults. And as I do, I'm going to ask our worship teams to come out on the four platforms of our campuses. We're going to sing a great song. After reciting Psalm 51, you, you got to sing a song like Cornerstone that reminds you it's because of Christ's sacrifice for me that I could be cleansed, be made into a new person. But here are the four lessons. Walk the talk, number one. And by the way, as we sing this song, we're going to collect offering. This is one of those walk the talk life lessons. What are your kids, your grown kids especially, what do they see you doing with your money? Is it all getting spent on yourself or do they see there's a priority in my parents' lives to invest money in Christ's kingdom? So walk the talk. What are the lessons you want to pass on to your kids? Because if you're not living those lessons, they're, they're probably listening or watching rather what you do and not listening to what you say. Number two, say the hard thing. Say, some of you know already the hard thing that needs to be said to one of your kids. Say it gently. Coax it out of them by asking sensitive questions instead of making critical statements. Number three, be an active listener. Carve out time. Make it deliberate. Make it a standing appointment when you're going to get together and you're going to talk and you're going to draw them out. And then lastly, openly confess your wrongs because it opens a door for the gospel. The gospel is not something you embrace once and then move on from it's something you embrace every day of your life. So we're going to sing this song and collect our gifts. And then when the song is over, our campus pastors are going to come and close in a word of prayer.